Well, this sermon is really a continuation of uh, last week's sermon titled, What Becomes of Our Boasting? from Romans chapter 4. We concluded that our boasting becomes our humiliation, which becomes our exaltation, which becomes uh, an endless communion of, of love. And we saw how God did this in Abraham, if you remember, all with this outrageous promise. The promise is so outrageous that most of us can't even begin to hear it. If we had heard it last week, our heads would have exploded. Long about chapter 4, verse 13, and none of them did. So I'm going to have to read it again, okay? Paul is telling the story of Abraham when he makes this comment. The promise to Abraham and his offspring, which in Greek is sperma, means seed. The promise to Abraham and his seed that he would be heir of the world, cosmos in Greek, did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Did you notice that according to Paul, Abraham was promised the cosmos? That's, that's quite a lot. In Genesis, we read that he was promised a land, which if you don't know is less than a cosmos, the cosmos. And he was promised a sperma, a seed, which can refer to one seed, and it does according to Paul in Galatians 3.16, but it also refers to many seeds, uh, according to Paul in Galatians 3.29, and according to God. Because remember the story, God tells Abraham his seed, singular, will be like the stars, plural, of heaven. I looked it up. Scientists estimate there are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. That's quite a lot. Well, Paul says it's not just a land and a seed. It's not even 200 billion trillion seeds. It's the universe, the cosmos. That's all things, all things. And that would include sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It would even include Adolf Hitler, if in fact he is a thing. God created everything according to Scripture, and everything God creates is good, according to Scripture. And so the not good, that is the evil, must be a nothing. Not a thing, but more like the absence of a thing. So, Abraham inherits sex, all sex, without infidelity. And Abraham inherits drugs, or at least wine, we know, without a lack of self-control. And he inherits all rock and roll without any Barry Manilow, that's my guess. No, I'm kidding. Barry, Barry Manilow will be in heaven, but all his music will be redeemed. For all the empty places will be enhanced with electric guitar and drums. Hallelujah. And Abraham will inherit Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, but without animosity, rage, and resentment. For all those empty places in Adolf Hitler will be filled with love. And Abraham will inherit Judah. That is, all the, the Jews, which would include Jacob and Esau, Judas and Jesus, the king of the Jews, and Abraham will inherit Lazarus. That is, Eliezer, like we talked about last time, his Syrian slave who lost the inheritance when Isaac, the promised child, was, was born. Eliezer will get Abraham, and Abraham will get Eliezer in his bosom, along with Hitler and Jesus, and Judas, and all the Jews. I mean, that's like, that's quite a party. That's quite a lot. Abraham will inherit all things, and his seed will inherit all things. And Jesus is his seed, the promised seed, which means that Jesus will inherit himself somehow, as well as all things, 
including Abraham, who will inherit Jesus. According to Hebrews 1-2, God has appointed Jesus the heir, the inheritor of all things. Jesus is the seed, but we'll soon read that you also are the seed. 1 Corinthians 3.21, listen to this, okay? Just dare to believe the Bible for a second. Paul writes, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the present or the future, all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Boom, I mean seriously, your head should explode. All things belong to God and to Abraham and to Jesus and to you and to me. <laughs> Which means scripture is untrue or we're all gonna share because we want to share because we have faith and hope in love. See, either the biblical idea of heaven is an illusion or it is an ecstatic communion infinitely beyond our ability to comprehend right now, accomplished by a miracle that is in fact salvation from ourselves. It's like a symphony in which each person loves to play their own part and yet constantly loses themselves and finds th themselves within the music. It's like an outrageous banquet wherein each and everyone constantly passes the ball, losing themselves and finding themselves in this great dance of joy. It's like a honeymoon. The banquet is a wedding feast, it's a wedding banquet, so at least two bodies become one body in the sacrament of a covenant that is life. It's like a body and it is a body. We all become one body in Christ Jesus, our husband, and so you see, he does inherit himself, us. Boom, that's, that's big. We inherit. And like we said last time, if anyone inherits anything, no one can inherit everything. E even Jesus inherits all things from his Father, according to Hebrews 1. He, he works, but his work is rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, the seventh day, the, the coming kingdom, the coming age, the eternal kingdom. So absolutely everything, everything that's anything is grace. In fact, God is grace. He is free and relentless love. And, and of course, we don't believe that. And we're terrified to hope. Which makes Romans incredibly hard to translate and even harder to, to preach. We don't believe the promise for all sorts of reasons. But let me just suggest a few, okay? Number one, we've been stuck in a ridiculous notion of space and time ever since the 16th century. We think it's science, but it's not. And it never was science. In scripture, time is not absolute, and it's not simply linear, that is chronological. If you've been around the sanctuary, you've seen this image several times, and you know that I talk about it in detail in my book, The History of Time and the Genesis of You. According to scripture, we are currently trapped in chronological time, that is, we're stuck on this timeline, which scripture describes as the six days of creation. However, there's a seventh day, that is a seventh age, which is God's age for which scripture uses the word eternal or ionios. It's outside of the timeline, you see? And yet, it's at hand, it's at hand. But we will one day enter eternity, and eternity does and will enter us now. This is the door between space-time and eternity. This is the end and the beginning of the ages, the, the ions. In Scripture, time is not absolute, and neither is space. In Scripture, God is I am, and so whatever is not God is I am 
naught. That is nothing. That means that the Big Bang, or creation, was not really the explosion of something in the nothing. It was more like an explosion of the nothing in the something that is God. That means that space-time is like a womb, if you will, almost in God, even though prepositions don't work once you get outside of space and time, but like a womb in God, and you will be born from that womb through this door, through this door. This is the beginning and the end of space-time as we experience it. And it's the beginning and the end of you as you currently experience yourself. One day you will look at you in the eyes of God. That will be your mirror. You'll look at you in the eyes of God and you'll think, wow, that's a new and eternal me. Full of like eternal life and at home, at home in the arms of my Abba, my father, my dad. So we don't believe the promise because number one, even though eternity is in our hearts, these old bodies are stuck in space and time. And so when we read scripture, we have like a filter and we think to ourselves, impossible. Poetry, impossible. And number two, the reason we don't believe the promise is that we're in the dark. And in the middle of the, the timeline, the middle of the story, if you judge a novel by one page in a story, you will not understand the plot, the logos. And Jesus is the plot. Number three, not only are we in the middle of the story, we think that we're writing the story. And so we've seized control of the plot the beginning and the end and the way. We've done this, everybody assumes it. We've seized control of the plot, which actually is the promise, and so of course, number four, we are terrified to hope. Because hope can hurt, can it? Last time I asked you if you ever felt like God made you a promise, and now you find that promise humiliating. In other words, hope can hurt. Hope is like an empty space that just contains like a, a little seed of faith. Hope is the distance between what you have and what it is that you desire. Hope is the distance between what you experience now, a seed, and the promised blessing, which is what? Everything good. So maybe with the prophet Jeremiah, you've cried out, curse be the day that I was born. Lord, be not to me like a deceitful brook. Don't promise your living water and then make me thirsty. Don't withhold your blessing. And yet all, all hope, think about this, all hope involves waiting, doesn't it? Or it wouldn't be hope. Hope that is seen is not hope, writes Paul in four chapters in Romans 8, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I suck at patience. And also hope. Solomon writes something utterly fascinating in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. Listen closely. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. How many of you have heard that, quoted that? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled, literally a coming desire, is a tree of life. I used to quote that first line to God a lot, complaining that he was making my heart sick by deferring my hope. But there's only one problem with that idea, and that is that hope always involves waiting. And God is eternal. That means he's never late. And he is exactly, exactly on time. So maybe God doesn't defer hope, 
but I defer hope. And I do that by not waiting, which is not hoping, but something the Bible refers to as wanting. Recently, through some words that my wife received, the Lord told me, told me this, Peter, don't let hope flee from your prayers. And I have, because it hurts. But he also quoted himself just a little bit before that through my wife saying this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he told me, want for nothing, for I am with you. In other words, hope, don't want. Ha! God frustrates me. I mean, that's, that's really confused me, but I think it means this. I'm to desire the green pastures and the still waters, but I'm to trust that the shepherd is the way who will lead me in time, but I defer that hope by seizing control, abandoning the way, and then I become lost. Maybe all sin, think about this, maybe all sin is seizing control of hope. Instead of hoping that God will give us the good, we take knowledge of the good, and so do evil. Instead of hoping that God will give us life, we take life. We take the life of the shepherd. Instead of hoping that we'll be made in his image, we try to do it for him. Instead of hoping for all things, we take all things, destroy all things, and then we're unable to inherit anything. Hope is faith and grace over time, over space-time. Last week I asked, why do people get scared and angry when we suggest that God might justify all and make all things new? We notice that if God justifies all, no one can justify themselves. That's the death of the ego. But maybe another way to say that is, is to say this. We're terrified to hope for fear that the promise is too big. If we fear that the promise is too big, it reveals that we think God is too small or that we think we must ensure that the promise will happen, which means we aren't hopeful, we're wanton. And so God makes us wander in the wilderness just like the Israelites. I think that's where the tame comes from. They grew wanton in the wilderness. I'm saying that we try to ensure our faith with fear. So what do we do? We say, well, God is salvation. That's the name of Jesus. God is salvation, but I'm also salvation too. And subconsciously we think, rather than hope for all things, I'll settle for a house and two cars and ensure my hope with hard work and anxiety. Right now, right now, there are literally hundreds of millions of people enacting legislation that is law, and preparing to go to war in the Middle East over a piece of land called Israel and a dispute over which group is comprised of the genetic descendants of Abraham. And people that call themselves Christians are actually joining that fight. It's because they don't believe the promise. And they're terrified to hope. You cannot grow faith in the promise with fear that the promise isn't true. Okay, back to our text. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his <coughs> seed that he would be inheritor of the cosmos did not come through the law. The knowledge of good and evil and our ability to choose the good and do the good, but it came through the righteousness, the rightness of trust, that's faith, for if the heirs, the inheritors, are inheritors by law, well, faith or trust is null, it's pointless, and the promise is void, has no meaning. The promise has no meaning, for the law brings anger, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on, on faith, on trust, in order that the promise may rest on grace. The, prom the promise is a gift, inheritance is our gift, it's grace, and be guaranteed to all 
his seed, all his offspring, not only to that of the law, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That means that all are seed and all inherit the promised seed. In Galatians 3, 16 through 29, Paul equates the seed that is promised to Abraham with Jesus. And then listen closely. He then equates it with faith, as if faith come to us is Jesus come to us, which then makes us Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise, which is also seeds. That, 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 that means that all that inherit faith inherit Jesus and inherit themselves, the seed of Abraham, which is their true selves and all things with them. See, I don't know any other way to explain all of that scripture. Verse 16, Abraham, the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many, which is all nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, just the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist, including faith in an empty, dead place where there once was no faith or no life. Last week, we reviewed the life of Abraham. So hopefully you remember when he was a 75-year-old uncircumcised Gentile living in Syria, the word of God just came to him one day as this outrageous and apparently unconditional promise. Genesis 12.1, the word said go. And it turns out he's saying go in the direction that he was already headed, which I'd never noticed before. Go and I will bless you and make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, that's kind of a crazy thing to say, isn't it? It means Abraham, or Abram at this time, is the judgment and blessing of God, or that the judgment and blessing of God is in Abraham like a seed. And so whatever you do to Abraham, you do to him, the seed. Well, just as Paul describes in Galatians 3, the promise came to Abram, right? And the faith came to Abram in Genesis 12. But it seems to have only been about the size of a seed. And yet over the next 25 years, as Abram is humiliated, the promised seed just seems to grow. And God reckons it as righteousness because it is. At 100 years old, Isaac is born, Abraham's life, love, and laughter. And then about 30 years later, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to him on Mount Moriah, which is Mount Calvary and Mount Zion, the holy mountain where mankind is made in the image of God. Soren Kierkegaard called Abraham's obedience the teleological suspension of the ethical and the definition of faith. For in that moment, Abraham had to believe that the good was not knowledge of good and evil, like in a book, but that the good was the word of God, his living helper, his husband, his azer, if you will. And so he surrendered his judgment to the judgment of God. That's the death of the ego and the life of faith which hopes. On the holy mountain, Abraham hoped. Hebrews 11 tells us that at that moment, Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, as a parable, he did receive him back. And you know the story, right? God intervened with a substitute. God provided a lamb, which turns out to be his life, his love, and his laughter, his son. The promised blessing promised to Abraham, the heart of the father, and the judgment of God, the indestructible and eternal seed, Jesus our Lord. Abraham surrendered his life, Isaac, and received his life, and actually every life, the life, back. He surrendered 
the promise, and he received the promise back and all things with him. Because you have done this, says the Lord, I will bless you. And yet the Lord had already unconditionally promised the blessing 50 years earlier when Abraham was an uncircumcised Gentile living in Syria. You see, God can unconditionally promise the blessing. God can unconditionally promise the blessing that is conditioned upon faith, for faith itself is conditioned upon God. God can unconditionally promise uh, the, the blessing that is conditioned upon faith, for God himself implants faith within us with a promise, like a seed. And faith for the distance, from conception to fruition, is called hope. Faith is the promise seed, and hope is faith for the distance. Next verse, Romans 4, verse 18. In hope, he faithed, he believed against or upon hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, as he had been promised, so shall your seed be. That first line can be translated in hope upon hope he believed, meaning this is like a whole lot of hope, but most seem to think that's an idiomatic expression, like hope against hope. It doesn't make sense to say that true hope is against true hope, right? Because it's the same thing. But it does make sense to say that true hope is against false hope. False hope, which isn't hope in God, but hope in human will and effort. False hope, which isn't hope, but actually wantonness. And so from this story, hopefully remember, Abraham did not only hope in God to fulfill the blessing, Abraham also hoped in himself to fill the blessing, which isn't hope. Twice, in the middle of the story, he tries to pimp his wife to Pharaoh in Egypt and Abimelech and, Abimelech and somewhere named Gerar or something like that. And when he was 85 and Sarah remained barren, Abraham impregnated his wife's slave girl, Hagar, trying to ensure, trying to guarantee the blessing. And you see, that's not faith or hope in God. That's wantedness. Verse 19, Paul writes this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead. Now that's a little strange for him to say that, but hang with me for a minute. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead, since he's about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness, the necrosis, the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he considers his own, uh, Sarah's, or his necrotic body, body, and he considers Sarah's necrotic womb, and he perceived that his body was like Sarah's womb. So just as there was an empty space, a void, and uh, an empty womb in Sarah, so there was an empty void, even death in Abraham's body. This is young Abraham in a speedo, by the way. Um, and uh, he, even though he looks good, he has a body that's good as dead because there's an empty void inside. I'm saying Sarah had an empty womb, and Abraham's body was also an empty womb, but he had a seed of, of faith. He recognized that Sarah's womb was dead, verse 20, yet he did not falter through infidelity to God's promise, the seed, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, from that verse and the verse before, you could think to yourself that Paul had never read the book of Genesis, right? And yet we know that Paul is a Bible scholar who knows the book of Genesis like the back of his hand. He knows about Hagar, and he knows that at 99, Abraham fell on his face and laughed when God told him that Sarah would have, his, have a son. He knows, and so he must consider Abraham, he must consider Abraham to be like two people. Perhaps an Abram and an Abraham. Or perhaps an old Abraham and a new Abraham, or maybe a false Abraham, and a true Abraham, uh, perhaps one that wants, and also one that hopes, an Abram that thinks he must make himself the father of many nations, and an Abraham that believes that God has already made him the father 
of all nations, or an Abraham that believes he must justify himself, or an Abraham that believes he has already been justified by God, it is finished. An Abraham that believes the promise. It's like Paul is speaking of the true Abraham that hopes against the false Abraham. Even as hope grows in Abraham's wanton despair. It's like faith was implanted in the womb of Abram's body by means of the promise. It was only like the size of a mustard seed, but as Abraham's ego dies, the seed grows. The seed in Abraham is the promise in Abraham, who is Jesus Christ our Lord, such that it's no longer Abraham that lives, but Christ who lives in Abraham. That's the way Paul's talking. You know, on Mount Moriah, and I know this is your problem with the story, on Mount Moriah, every bit of human reason, every bit of wantonness, would have been telling Abraham that he best run from that place. That he best run from the judgment of God and hide Isaac, hide his life, his love, his laughter, hide the blessing in the dark and the depths of the earth like a tomb. But in hope against hope, all human hope, he surrendered the promise to the one who spoke the promise in the first place, and the promise rose from the tomb that had been old Abraham. Verse 20, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Not as he took a class, learned some stuff, and tried really hard. But as he believed the promise, as he worshiped, as he hoped, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able, God was able to do what he had promised. What had God promised? Romans 3.13, that Abraham and his seed would inherit the cosmos. Or, to put it another way, behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21, verse 5. It is the plan for the fullness of time to unite. Anakephali, I'll bring together under one head all things in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.10. For when I be lifted up from the earth, says Jesus, I will draw all people unto myself, John 12. Or turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I've sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, that's faithfulness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Isaiah 45, which Paul is going to quote in chapter 14. Behold, God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. Genesis 1-3. For he had said, let us make man, Adam, in our own image and likeness. And on the seventh day, it is finished and everything is good. In the next chapter of Romans, Paul claims that all who died in the first Adam will be made alive in the last Adam, second Adam, eschatos Adam, Jesus, perfect image of the invisible God. It was an organized, institutional, Christian denomination, my brothers, that asked me to publicly confess that all those promises and a whole lot more were impossible. And Paul writes, Abraham gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, I think it is unrighteousness and faithlessness to believe that God is unable to make all things new and give the cosmos to Abraham and his seed. When we argue that God cannot save, don't we do the work of the devil? Don't we defer hope and make the heart of humanity sick? Verse 23, and the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. They were written for us, but for ours also. Righteousness, faithfulness will be counted to us who believe upon him 
who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up, dia, through our trespasses, which are faithlessness and unrighteousness, and raised through our justification, which is faithfulness and righteousness, given to us as our inheritance. Remember this scene? And how we said it is contained within a building? The temple? which in reality is the body of Christ. That's many members constantly losing life, for the life is in the blood, and constantly receiving life, for the blood is a river of life. It's many members joined together like musical instruments in a symphony or participants at a great banquet which turns into this incredible dance or lovers that lose themselves and find themselves in one body. This is what happens in the heart of the temple but now portrayed outside the city walls for everyone to see. Now, we will need an eternity to ponder this, but in the heart of the temple, which is the body, the life which is in the blood is delivered up. Parodidimai is this fascinating verb in Greek. It gets translated a lot of different ways. It's also handed over. It's also betrayed. You see, we did that in faithlessness, which is transgression, transgression. We, we took the life from the tree. But God does this in faithfulness, which is not transgression, but our justification. He gives his life on the tree. We took that sin, and God gave that grace, and God still gives, and now he tells us, take, which now for us means receive, for we now know that he is always given. In fact, he has forgiven his life to us. So we live in hope rather than die in wanton despair because we've been to the holy mountain and now we know God is faithful. Faith is a decision to lose your life and find your life in another. Hope is a longing for all the members, all the parts of a body to make that decision of faith together. Love is the reality that constantly makes that decision and so binds everything together in a communion called life. Faith, hope, and love is the judgment of God implanted in the garden sanctuary of your heart. And Jesus is the judgment of God and we are his body, his one body, each and every one of you is a member of that body. Or maybe I should say the new you, the true you, is a member of that body. Actually, your old man, the old you, the man that you thought you created, the man or, or the woman, and we're all the man in Scripture, the man that you thought you created is an empty void, even a womb which gives birth to the new you, the man that God has created, who is the person that you truly are. And as we'll see, that man is, in some fantastic way, Jesus. You are giving birth to Jesus in you, the true you. I've seen this four times, but when a woman gives birth, although it involves incredible suffering, endurance, and character, and a whole lot of hope, she then knows that she did not create the baby. It was a whole lot of labor, a whole lot of work, but she didn't create the baby, so she's not proud, she's grateful. You will be infinitely grateful that God has created you saved you and redeemed you. And so you will confidently, gladly, and ecstatically give yourself away. Lose yourself and find yourself in an endless communion of love that is life, eternal life. For all things are yours, you are Christ, and Christ is God's. That's how God makes you right. 
You take his life, that's transgression, and God raises his life in you, that's justification, and alive in you, he binds all things together, and you become grateful. It begins as a seed of faith, implanted in you as a promise, and it grows into an eternal communion of endless love, and it all happens through hope. Hope in God, and you will find that God has always been hoping in you. I have an old friend who was the youngest of four and repeatedly told, they would tell this story every time the family got together by her mother and her siblings, how she was a mistake. She was the fourth and she hadn't been wanted. They would tell this story about no one, how no one had hoped, no one had hoped that she would be born, she thought. Made her rather hopeless, insecure, driven and, and alone. In a session of healing prayer, she had a vision. After I had preached a sermon on Genesis in which I spoke of the universe as a womb into which God speaks his word, his seed, she, she sent me this description of her vision, and I just want to read it to you. Peter, God showed me the most amazing thing. I saw the Holy Spirit prepare a place for me. It was a dark orb and he hovered over it and touched it here and there. Wherever he had been, the dark orb was covered with light, pure, white, and intense. I came to understand that this was my mother's egg and that he was preparing this place just for me. I cannot describe to you the intensity of everything. First, there was this indescribable peace, then trust, that's faith, I just knew that everything I saw was supposed to be. The most amazing thing was what I understood about the creativity and purpose of the Holy Spirit. His single intent was to glorify God, to, gl to glorify Jesus. And this intention was motivated by this intense love. So much so that his love for God and Christ naturally extended to me. In other words, he was not using me to glorify them. The extension of his love to me glorified us all. His love was so pure and intense and single-minded that I knew he was telling me that I was not a mistake, that he intended me, that he created me with love and purpose, which is different than for a purpose. And in that act, in my trusting consent, God would be glorified. It's no surprise to me that after that prayer experience, I went home with my children for our family room, and no one, no one told the story of how I am unwanted. That was the first time that happened. And it was no surprise to me that in your preaching in Genesis, the creation of the earth looked remarkably like my own creation, a void covered with light, surrounded by substance, with the same intent that he created the earth, he created each one of us. I think another way to say that is he creates us in hope. Romans 8, 24, in this hope we are saved. So the cosmos is like a womb. We'll read that in Romans chapter 8. Your old self is also like a womb. We'll read that later in chapter 5 that's coming right up. And hope is like a womb. Hope is like a womb because it prepares a place for love. Hoping for my children prepared a place for my children. Hope expands our hearts and teaches us the beauty of, of grace. God plants a seed of faith that makes you hope. And in that empty space, he reveals himself and he is love, free love, grace. You know, Jesus refers to himself as the son of God because God is his father. But he only refers to himself as the son of God four times in all the gospels, all in the gospel of John, just four times. However, he refers to himself as the son of man 82 times. That's not because we are his father, but because we are his mother. And he is born of our labor, not our works, but our travail, our, our labor, our suffering, endurance, character, and hope. So you see, this old universe is a womb, 
Your old self is a womb, and hope is a womb, and in that womb, Christ is formed, according to Paul. That's, that's what he says. And in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and through him, writes Paul, are all things. So the universe is, is a womb giving birth to you, and you are a womb giving birth to Jesus, and in and through Jesus are all things. And so, yeah, this is a picture of your womb, Sarah. It's not a dead womb. It contains an entire new creation. So have hope. Get your hopes up. It is impossible for you to hope too much. And yet you can hope in the wrong way, which is actually no way. Think about the story of Abraham, what we said last week. Abraham, you know, never hoped too much. It was always too little. And yet he did hope in the wrong way, which is actually no way. The promise is the only way. Next verse, and then we'll be done. Therefore, since we have been justified, made right by trust, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access in faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice. Literally, the word is boast. We boast in hope, hope of the glory of God. Paul tells us that we will each have an immeasurable weight of glory, but you see, our ego cannot bear that weight. We must have faith that the glory is a gift. We must hope for all things, but believe we earn no things, for we inherit all things, or we will be crushed by everything. Only love bears all things. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice, boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint us, is how most versions translate that. Hope does not disappoint Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, listen closely, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. You're commanded to love. And God is love. And love hopes all things. So hope for everything and want for nothing. For in this moment, God has given you exactly what you need. For at the edge of space, time, and eternity, the shepherd, who is the way, who is the door, took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it, do it in remembrance of me. See, this is like a, a seed of faith. And it creates a space. Or maybe it transforms a space from wantonness into hope. And that space will be filled with the glory of God. And God is love. God is better than you thought. The love of Jesus is deeper than you know. And the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. Have hope. So just close your eyes for a minute. 
And let me ask you, have you given up hope? Did you know that Christ in you is the hope of glory? So you see, if you've given up hope, you've given up the shepherd. But don't panic. He rises from the dead. And he says to you, have hope. I think he would say something like this, maybe. Sweetheart, you have never hoped too much. You have always hoped too little. And you have hoped in the wrong way. Hope in me. For I am leading you to your inheritance, which is all things. These slight momentary afflictions, they prepare you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, what you are to receive is so big that only love could bear it. And I am love. And I am giving myself to you. So have hope. In Jesus' name, have hope. Amen. Hey, if you'd like prayer, uh, Kareen will be down front here. And oh, we put this, we do this, the, we put this river thing out. We forgot to do it today. Symbolizing that our hope comes from Jesus, this river of living water. And you're welcome to come down here and pray with uh, Kareen or whoever. I mean, we need each other to have hope, to trust the shepherd and to continue hoping because uh, this, this journey is full of tribulation and affliction and requires endurance. But by way of benediction, I mean, I really have been struggling the last few years with this whole, like, God, what the heck do you mean? Hope and, and don't want. That has confused me. But I think this is what he's saying. Hope for everything and want for nothing. For in this moment and in every moment, I am giving you exactly what you need. Faith that hopes for all things infused with love. In other words, believe the gospel. Amen.